And no longer are you like, oh, got to create a new tab and leave my game and I got to go to blocks or I got to go to whatever application <laughs> and then figure out how much to power up and do that transaction and then close the tab and come back to my game. Like that is a huge distraction in the user experience that the SDKs are going to help solve. This is the Everything EOS podcast. I'm Zach Gall, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Brandon Lovejoy, and we are here with our esteemed guest of the hour, Aaron Cox. Aaron is the founder of Graymass, a top 21 EOS block producer, as well as a block producer on many other Antelope networks. He is the builder of the Anchor Wallet, an EOS Foundation board member, the very first Eden Head Chief Delegate, co-host of the Coffee with Graymass podcast, author of the Wallet Plus Blue Paper, product lead for today's topic, the Antelope Web Client SDKs, which was recently awarded a $1.3 million milestone-based grant from the Antelope Coalition. And don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on the post, let us know what you think of today's show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is a longer list than I anticipated of things. It's been a busy couple of years. The list continues to grow. So Brandon and I had a conversation with you a couple of months ago about a very similar topic, actually. And I had the show notes I copy and pasted of like your resume, essentially, of things you've done within the EOS and Antelope ecosystems. And honestly, since the last time, it's continued to grow. And it will continue to grow moving forward, I think. But uh, yeah. we really uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. And <clears throat> I always call you a man of many hats. One of these days, I'm going to just send you a hat rack and you'll have somewhere to put all those. Yep. Looking and I will put up. it behind me somewhere. It will be mm -hmm. like prominent. Like, these are my hats. That'd be appropriate. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what you're up to these days. I mean, outside of SDKs, which we know we're going to dive into pretty deeply here. Um, what are you up to? What are the different projects and priorities that you and Graymass are currently working on? I mean, at a really high level, aside from SDKs, those take up, I'd say about 50% of our time right now, maybe a little bit more, it varies person to person. Um, there's a lot of focus on Anchor as like a product around it, whether that's website and support and like how we encapsulate it into just a better experience for users. That's not always about improving the app itself. Sometimes it's about building all the stuff around it. So there's a lot of work going into that side and brainstorming on how we make all that better. We are doing a lot of cross-training internally right now. Like right before this call, I was on one where we were doing cross-training on infrastructure and we were talking about how to set up history APIs and how to maintain them and how like they're configured and whatnot. And aside from like, those are the big ones. Unicove, I guess, is a, is still a fairly big part of what we're doing. The development on that, we've got some stuff going on that's not major feature, but is to get us ready to use the new SDKs within Unicove. I think at a very high level, that's kind of the big umbrella. So that's a lot. Yeah. So I'm still waiting for the killer Unicove experience. It's coming yeah. still. It hasn't stopped. No, no. I mean, it's, just like with the SDKs that we started years ago to work in the web side of Antelope blockchains, we really kind of take our time at the beginning of a project and do the building blocks, which are really not noticeable from like a user perspective, but it sets us up so that way we can really just start running once we hit a certain point where the foundation is stable. So we're kind of doing that with Unicove right now. It's lots of changes that most people aren't going to notice. And then once we get to the point where we can start dedicating some real resource to feature development using all those building blocks, then that's when all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, new section and here's a new tool and here's all these pieces. But Unicove maybe gets like 10% of our team's time right now, just because we're split up amongst so many projects. So it moves a little slowly. Um, hopefully that'll be changing. Well, yeah, as we know, you've got a lot on your plate and the team too. How many people on the team? Currently? uh 10 right now total oh, okay not all developers though how many newbies have you brought on in the past couple of months this year i think four we've had some like we've lost some and gained some but i think there are four new people as of this year that are still here so very nice 
Yeah. So almost doubling over the course of this year. And we're still kind of recruiting at this point. We've got outstanding spots for some project management type stuff. We're looking for very specific kinds of developers to come in. Our Medium blog, I believe, has some of the posts that talk about this. And that's at graymass.medium.com. Awesome. We'll make sure to put that in the notes too and remind everybody again. All right. Well, let's dive into SDKs. Um, I guess we're calling them web client SDKs. They've been called a lot of things. And um, yeah, what are they? Why do they matter? We think web SDKs is probably the best way to, to, to describe them. These are eventually going to have a name, like Leap is an example. We have Leap, which is the C++ implementation of kind of the protocol. The SDKs are going to have their own name as well. But right now they are just the web client SDKs because that is, I think, the most concise, accurate description of what they are. They are a series of tools that let web developers build things that interact with analog-based blockchains, whether it's kind of a server-side thing that runs in the background, like a bot or a script or whatever. If it's using web tech, it'll be able to use these SDKs. And then anything in the web browser will also be able to leverage these SDKs to build user experiences like Unicove, like we were just talking about. Um, we really want to dog food these SDKs through Unicode so that way we're actually using them and making sure they work as we're building them. So, so just, just in case anyone wandered in and doesn't know what an SDK is at all, software development kit. Is, is there any other blockchain ecosystem with, with like branded SDKs? So like I think of like Cosmos SDK, would you call consider like the web client SDKs that you're working on with Graymass similar to anything that may be familiar to people that already exists in other ecosystems? Yeah, I think in the Wallet Plus paper, when we first started talking about this idea, we cited a couple other examples, something like Hard Hat which is an Ethereum SDK. And I believe that one's specifically for building contracts, but it is, it's in a similar vein in terms of being named like that. There's one called Morales, which is also an Ethereum. It's a bigger suite that lets you build applications with it. Within these ecosystems, they have kind of these named things that a lot of people will associate with being able to build a specific kind of thing. Even, I think probably the best analogy is stepping outside of crypto. And just thinking about the web and web development, people know what React is. If you have any familiarity with like web development, React is a branded SDK for web development. This is something that developers will put on their resumes, things that employers will cite as a technology that they want people to be able to use. These are all just SDKs that really help accelerate the development of applications on the web. So that's kind of the goal with these web client SDKs is to give them that name recognition. So that way within the space, you know, like if I'm looking for a web developer, I can say, you know, have experience with this SDK, because if you have experience with that SDK, you're going to be a lot more familiar with the tech stack than me just saying, know these programming languages. Like the SDKs kind of introduce the concepts to you without you having to write all the code for that. It's your Lego box with all your cool toys that, you know, your employer could say, build me a castle out of this box of Legos and you'd be able to. If they just said, build me a castle and didn't give you any Legos, then you'd be like, well, what do I use? So <laughs> kind of a bad analogy on the spot, but that that's what we're really going for with this project is, is we want that to be this recognizable thing that when somebody wants something done, they can just leverage this technology. We're over a year into these SDKs because one year ago, you were in the middle of writing the Wallet Plus Blue Paper, which was the first thing that kind of explained what these SDKs are, why we needed them, and all of the things lacking in what's now known as the Antelope ecosystem. But the development of them, so you described what we needed and put out a rough proposal at the time in the Wallet Plus Blue Paper. And then right as the Wallet Plus Blue Paper was being published is right around the same time that the Antelope Coalition kind of came together and started becoming a formidable thing. So at that time, I believe like a lot of these bigger initiatives that are kind of cross-chain functional as far as being something useful to all of the different Antelope chains the funding and development for those things were kind of put on hold until process could be put together, which 
for the RFPs, requests for proposals. And the SDKs were actually the very first proposal to be put out as an RFP. So I guess I, I missed one other step was that um, last April, April 8th, I believe, was whenever the Antelope Coalition announced $8 million of funding commitment for the next year. And at that time, all of the chains made a, a $2 million commitment in US Tether. EOS was like 73% of it. And the other three chains kind of made up the rest. And that account mostly sat untouched for a very long time, the tether sitting in that account, because we've had other proposals that were funded. So instant finality and inter-blockchain communications, those are very large proposals, over $3 million of a milestone-based grant funding for those, but they were all paid in EOS, WAX, Talos, and UX tokens, because they're going to bootstrap some liquidity for something else with that. So this Tether just sat there for a very long time. And it was very nice to see it, it finally started moving around recently, because I said at the beginning of this call, $1.3 million grant for Graymass. And I think it's important to kind of make this clear is that whenever we announce these big numbers, it doesn't mean that Aaron's sitting on $1.3 million now. Everything that is funded through the Interlope Coalition and through the ENF itself is all milestone-based grants. And what that essentially means is the number you hear at the announcement is what the product team will earn over the course of the grant if they complete every milestone that they set out to do. We, we talked before the call, you mentioned how the work for the SDKs really started ramping up in the last month and you hit your very first milestone. What has that work been like and what actually was that first milestone that you guys hit? From the time the blue papers finished in like March or April, whenever those were finished and published, up until maybe August or September, there was the coalition forming and there was a lot of back and forth. We were kind of one of the guinea pigs for how does this process work to be able to do RFPs and assign grants and whatever. So from, let's say, April to maybe August was all writing proposals, uh, figuring out what roadmaps looked like like really a lot of high level project management that we had to figure out. And a part of that was these milestones that we came up with. I think in the proposal, there are 13 milestones. And the first one, it was set out to be, I think, two weeks, maybe three weeks total. I would have to look to know the exact number, but the title of it was just architecture. And the goal of that was for our team to sit down, collect everything we had been doing basically over the past year of talking about this idea and presenting and everything like that and come up with an architecture document of how we plan on kind of attacking this project and what the end result of this project will look like. To that end, we decided that this is going to be a living document. So that kind of messed with the milestones a little bit. But what we came to an agreement with the coalition was that revision one of this living document would be the completion of this first milestone. So we submitted this document. We had some calls about this document. We talked with a number of uh, application developers in the Antelope community and validated that like this architecture that we're going to follow, there's like no objections to it. There's no major problems with it and that this is a solid path forward. So we finished that and we had the meeting, it was approved. And then that first milestone was marked as complete. And that's what earlier this week actually released the first milestone payment, which was paid to our account in Tether. So now we have, I don't know, 3% of the total budget paid out for this overall project. So we're kind of working towards each milestone reporting. And then once external parties say, yes, this is an acceptable completion of this milestone, then we get retroactively paid for that work. So that's kind of how the system works. We're working on the second milestone right now, which is actually development, which is really nice. Uh, the team's happy to be like spending a significant amount of time writing code following the architecture, taking everything that we've researched over the past like year or so since the start of the Blue Papers, which was a year ago now that it is November, and just really starting to build. So we're starting to really get into the meat and potatoes of this project and should have things to show for it soon. So yeah, you're kind of in uncharted territory here with the SDKs and seemingly this is not really been attempted on EOS yet. What's that like? Why is that? And like, how do you see the the path forward through all this? I mean, I know we have milestones to kind of guide you along the way, but it wasn't easy to get there even. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, 
I, I think it wasn't easy to get here, but it's probably been worth it because we've kind of set a path forward for other potentially larger projects to follow this. It hasn't, I don't think, been done before in our space. I'm not sure how comparable it would be to other projects and other ecosystems that are crypto related. I'm sure there's some similarities, but I can't give a great example of something that's kind of unique to this network story. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, there's so many unique things about it. But as far as it being just the unknown, I don't think we're strangers to the unknown. I mean, our roots are in starting in blockchain and being like, man, this kind of sucks. How do we make this better? And <laughs> nobody had made it better before. So we're like, all right, we'll do this weird thing and see if that works. But over time, we've really learned how to kind of take the concepts of blockchain and twist them in new ways that nobody's done it before. Even back in the Steam days, when it was Johan and I experimenting with custom, like promptable transactions, that was like something that hadn't been done before. And while what we had built was super crude, it like just kind of venturing into the unknown and trying it gave us a lot of knowledge about, okay, what worked and what didn't. And really we're kind of leaning on all of that experience to help us wander into this, this kind of blue sky project, I think is what I have been calling it. It's just, you've got emptiness in front of you and you could go whichever direction you wanted with it, but which way is the best. And that prior knowledge will hopefully help keep us on track along with the milestones that we've laid out that were largely created on that past experience. But yeah, I'm sure we're going to run into some sort of snag along the way and have to pivot and probably panic a little bit, but we'll figure it out. I just wanted to say real quick, um, I don't know how quick it'll be your answer, but you know, for, for people that like myself also that don't really appreciate, so far we've been that the conversation has been very abstract about SDKs. And that is part of the problem that they address is that the way that developers now interact with the blockchain is very abstract. And what SDKs, if I understand this correctly, are attempting to do is to give them some sort of concrete things to, to hang on to in this abyss of like potential right now. You, you said abstract data types. Can you talk a little bit about that being the goal kind of of SDKs and how they, they help? developers get a leg up and like a handle on what's going on. Yeah. So the that library is something that we started. It's called the EOSIO core still right now. We think we're just going to rename it to Antelope or something. Um, it just hasn't happened yet. When it gets merged into this new SDK project in some form, that's like a perfect opportunity to rename it. So when that event happens, we're going to rename it. But yeah, we started that a long time ago because what we had for SDKs in the ecosystem was, it was kind of top down. It, it would give you a machine effectively that you'd like, uh, you would input a piece of paper in and then inside the box, it would do a bunch of things and then give you something back out. Like maybe it gave you a dis, like it copied the paper or something, but you really had no idea what was going inside the machine and you couldn't open the machine. So like that's how the SDKs that we have had have worked. The insides were just kind of a, a unknown jumbled mess and you couldn't access it. So what we did when we started EOSIO Core was to take and build every individual piece that goes inside the machine and just not assemble the machine. It was kind of an Ikea-like thing where when you install EOSIO Core into your program, we gave you like this toolbox that just had a bunch of parts in it. And it was like, here, figure out how to assemble it. That's the core component. It's those abstract data types. I could ramble through some, but they're kind of irrelevant. This next part of the SDK project we're doing is, is we're, we're like giving you pre-made machines based on all of those parts. So you'll be able to use that machine immediately, but you can also like look at the machine and see how all the parts are hooked together. And then you also have that toolbox with all the parts where you could like build it yourself if you wanted. Even earlier in this podcast, when I was talking about how we're kind of building from the ground up, that's kind of the same analogy I'm using here is we have all those parts now, we're starting to assemble them into small machines. And then eventually we'll be have like medium machines and giant machines but you're always going to be able to break them down to their smallest parts and then like reconfigure them. 
that is kind of a design philosophy that we have followed since the beginning is, and it's really made us kind of slow, to be honest, uh, is to build all the parts and to build like from the bottom up. So that way it's not just us that gives you a black box in the end. That's like, here you go, here's run this thing. We always give you all of the parts to build the thing. So that way, when you want to build something different, you can. Another uh, value add to the SDKs is like, there's a lot of different ways to solve a variety of different problems. And every DAP up until now has been doing it on their own, in their own way, the way that they believe is best. But there hasn't been any standards across the entire ecosystem. So that if I'm building an NFT marketplace, like I, sh I should just focus on what an NFT marketplace is and whatever my business model is around that. I shouldn't need to worry about resources or how to integrate different wallets. What are what are some of the other e examples of this reinventing the wheel problem that is currently going on in development across Antelope Chains, EOS mm -hmm. specifically, that will be much easier or be completely resolved through the web SDKs? Those are good examples. IBC transactions are going to be a new one that nobody's having to do yet, unless you're playing with IBC on the test nets that it exists on right now. But once developers start wanting to do that, we're going to enter the same situation where everybody will be reinventing the wheel in their own application. The SDKs, once released, will be able to give you one of those kind of preformed machines that is the IBC machine. And you'll just be able to use that in your application to then perform like I'm doing a token transfer on EOS and I want to prove it on Wax. You know, that'll just be a thing that applications can do without having to invent that wheel. Like you mentioned wallets, there's the account creation part of it. There's resource management, there's permission management. Uh, there's like verification that um, you are who you say you are. Like, you know, sometimes when you're using a DAP, it might have you sign kind of a dummy transaction just to mm -hmm. prove who you are. There's a lot of these kinds of flows that to create a really good experience, got to make yourself right now. And these SDKs are setting up to, again, let those reproducible machines be shared across multiple apps through people, through open source solutions. We want to build up a great toy box of reusable toys that people can then use to build their businesses upon. Obviously, they're going to be a lot more robust than toys. That might be a bad analogy, but it's Aaron all about is, sharing it. You're Santa Claus. It's, it's been confirmed. <laughs> Just go you, all white and get the red hat. Yeah. You brought up IBC and it wasn't a topic I had planned to talk <laughs> about. It brought up um, a discussion I remember when the RFP for IBC was getting finalized by Geom and the Origin team. And you took your, I guess, one of your first peeks at how this thing was going to work. And you saw the complications with signing on two different chains. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like a light bulb moment for me of like, wow, this is how things should be done. Because previously, and probably in other ecosystems as well, people are working in these isolated sandboxes, and they don't make all of the different considerations. But because of this collaborative nature of the, the antelope ecosystem, and even EOS itself, you kind of looked at this IBC, and you saw a pain point right away, You're like, whoa, 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 this is going to be super, super complicated for the user experience. And Origin wasn't really thinking about that. They're just thinking of how to get these like miracle proofs to all make sense and mm -hmm. some, some really hardcore tech underneath. But you were looking at it from the user experience perspective. Can you kind of share that story from your perspective? Yeah. Because it was quite interesting to me watching it play out. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously interested in the new tech that's coming to the blockchain. But I think that with how focused myself and my team has been on the user experience over the past couple of years, when we first started seeing the tech demos of how it would work and I played with it for the first time and it made me log in twice, once to each network and then perform two transactions, one on each network. I was like, that's, that's four potential transactions that you're going back and forth with Anchor to do. And so I started asking a lot of questions about like, okay, what is this step doing? And what is this doing? And trying to figure out how we could reduce that from the end user's perspective. Instead of two logins, maybe there's a protocol that allows you to log into multiple blockchains at the same time. Like that could be a thing that's not part of the SDKs right now, but if it becomes a standard, it could be adopted by the SDKs. 
SDKs will be flexible enough to handle it. It was also interesting because we've got into the two transactions and the first transaction is just, it's you doing something on the origin chain. And the second transaction is the proof that you did something on the other chain to the like second blockchain. And what we discussed in that conversation is, is that the user might not actually have to be the one that has to sign that transaction. Like anybody could prove that this action on chain A happened on chain B. So then not only are we like, okay, we can do that in the SDKs, but we could do that in like fuel and have, so the user doesn't even see the second transaction, like fuel in the background might just create that transaction, sign it and do it either for free or for fee. And like, let's just completely make the user experience, you know, that much better. So that's, that's our lens into a lot of this stuff right now is just like, how many times is the user clicking? How much do they have to read? How complicated is it to do? Like, if you just want to do a swap, you want to be like 10 EOS to Tether or whatever, and just click go, not go and then sign five times. And so that's, that is my first kind of. Mm. I mean, the IBC is more nuanced than the most common bridging between chains. So when mm -hmm. you're doing interoperability between two EVM compatible chains, you have your same public key sometimes being used on both chains. So you don't really need to validate across chains because if you have the private key on one chain, you have the private key on another chain. It's just the RPC node might be different. Yep. Whereas between Antelope chains, the, the account structure is different. I, my account on EOS might be already squatted on Talos, so I can't just create the same account. And I might not have the same public and private keys. So it's a whole different animal. You really need to create this mapping process that maps the accounts together. Mm -hmm. So my account is this on EOS, my account is that on Talos, my account is this on Wax. So what you're saying is creating like a service or maybe a table on one of the chains that acts as the source of truth and kind of connects all of the accounts together or what's this looking like for you? I think on our side, it's more, it would be off chain. It would be kind of, it's the wallet talking to the app to begin with. What you're trying to solve for is the, the like the interface that you're doing the swap on to know who you are on chain A and who you are on chain B. And potentially proving that so that way, you know, there's a layer of protection that something didn't get sent wrong. Um, so for us, it's we're looking at it at the protocol level that's off chain that potentially you click login and the response to the login tells the application, hey, on EOS, this is my account name and on Wax, this is my other account name. And they could be different. And then there's provable ways to make sure that that's like cryptographically secure and like the wallet's not lying in some way to protect you as a user from random things. But that's kind of the way we're imagining it right now. There might be able to be some sort of table. That's kind of what uh, FIO does with their mapping type systems. But from from standpoint of Anchor, like if you have your, your keys and accounts stored for the multiple chains all within Anchor, Anchor knows you hold these keys for Mm -hmm. all of these different chains. So it's, it, it really is on the client side, then it can happen off chain. It's still just as secure because if you trust the wallet itself to store your keys, you obviously trust it uh, and you don't got to worry about things getting lost. I, I don't have an on-chain strategy. This, this is also new. I just know yeah. the, map, the mapping issue because all of the bridging protocols that, that it currently exists, whether it's like P network or what that network was doing, mapping an EOS, IO, or EOS account or Antelope account to an EVM chain was always kind of an issue because it's not a one-to-one -one mapping. And you also want to be very careful that you don't get like an account wrong or a typo wrong so that when you bridge tokens across a chain, for example, you send it to an account that you don't actually have control over because you mistyped something, you, you missed something. Yeah. yeah. And that's what the login processes that we have submit uh, signatures. You're actually, when you log into an application with the protocols behind Anchor, it proves that you have access to the private key to that account. So never will you log in with an account that you can't actually like then withdraw tokens or perform actions on. So that's kind of a safety mechanism there during the login flow. We can just leverage that to make it so you log into multiple things at once and It'll work great for IBC. Well, okay. So you mentioned fuel, and I've been thinking about power up and the current situation we have with power up. 
And I'm wondering how, you know, how, how can the SDKs help extend that functionality? Can we get to a point where users don't have to think about resources on EOS? I'm going to bring it back to the IBC because I want to extend on this question. Is, we we just talked about the the accounts on the different chains and how you need to kind of map them together. But then there's also like the resource components. You're spending one resource token or power up or Rex or staking, whatever one chain's doing. Then there's might be a whole other resource model on the other chain. So I guess stick to Brandon's question and tie all that in too. So resources yeah, is the topic the- here. That's the PhD level question. Um, I just give you like the bachelor's degree question. Yeah. No, I I mean, I think if you've used Anchor and you've seen the transaction fee model that we have built into our SDKs for Anchor specifically, that sort of approach is going to be possible. And it's not just going to be because that leverages fuel on our side with Anchor, but that sort of approach to building uh, interfaces into applications is going to be repeatable for other processes. I don't know if there will be some form of this published. One of the parts, one of the milestones, one of the sub parts of the milestone is to create a resource provider framework within the SDKs, like some sort of like abstract building block to do stuff like this. And I don't know exactly what the capabilities of it will offer, but I imagine it will be something similar to what Fuel and Anchor allow for Anchor users today, except it will be possible to do that with other wallets, with other resource models, with other approaches to kind of abstracting away the resources from users. With the SDKs, it I guess something just to add very quickly about the SDKs is they're going to be modular. They're going to kind of have plugins to them. So as an application developer, you're going to be able to drop in, like if you were an application developer on EOS specifically, you could drop in a PowerUp plugin into your application, into the SDKs. And then when your users are using your application, let's say you run out of uh, CPU or whatever, the SDKs are going to be able to catch that you were out of CPU and the plugin can then pop up and say, would you like to power up your account first? And then you'll get like a yes or no in the web application. And it'll like tell you how much it's going to cost. And you'll just be able to click yes. And then you'll sign in addition to whatever you were trying to do. Like, let's say you're playing a game and you're trading an NFT or something. In addition, automatically to trading that NFT, it will append the power up action to that transaction. So that way your transaction just goes through and you never actually got the error that says insufficient CPU. It's going to like prompt you in advance to say, we need you to take an action alongside of what you were trying to do to make sure that you can do it. And maybe there's a way to make it so that just automatically happens. Like that'll be up to the architect of the plugin. And maybe there's like a remember option. So that way it just automatically puts it into the transaction for you. It'll be like some user preference on how you interact with resources. But the win here is is that no longer are you like, oh, got to create a new tab and leave my game and I got to go to blocks or I got to go to whatever application (laughs) and then figure out how much to power up and do that transaction and then close the tab and come back to my game. Like that is a huge distraction in the user experience that the SDKs are going to help solve. I could speak personally to that experience as we've all done it. I'm an advanced EOS user. And if I'm not using anchor, because I do use token pocket mobile for a lot of things when I'm in that mobile wallet, I can't tell you how many times I try to do something, get the error message. And I'm like, ah, and you can't do multiple tabs. There's one browser within the wallet. Got to go back, go EOS power up. Got to power up my account, then go back to what I was trying to do in the first place. And I'm just like, man, I know how all of this stuff works and I'm making these mistakes. And it's just, there's got to be a better way. And there is. <laughs> and yeah. you, guys, you guys already have it in, in a lot of ways with, with the current model of fuel, but it's going to continue to be improved upon and standardized to hopefully everyone. Yeah. I, mean, I think everyone should be using that model or at least something similar. The wallet blue paper went into this. This was like the, one of the big pitches of the wallet paper was that the reason that we all have to do that right now is just be, 
in large part due to the SDKs that we've had, like applications didn't have an option to build a better way to do it. Like the SDKs we have had for years are, hey, you want to do something? Just tell me what you want to do. And then I will try to do it. And when it fails, I'm going to give you an error. So there was never any, there was no way in those SDKs to say, hey, is this going to work? Like, is this transaction going to succeed? Should we do anything else to help this transaction succeed? That was just like a foreign concept to those SDKs. And the only reason that we get around that using the anchor SDKs is because we stopped using those, those old SDKs. Like we completely ditched them. And we then had the flexibility to do things like offer transaction fees and catch that in advance and be like, oh, this transaction is going to fail unless you buy 100 bytes of RAM. So we're just going to add the 100 bytes of RAM to your transaction so that way it'll succeed. And that's the next logical step is to take that stuff that we learned and let everybody use it through a new set of SDKs that replaces the old ones that just honestly can't do this sort of good user experience. And all of what you mentioned was the reason why when Fuel was first released and Anchor really started growing in popularity, a lot of legacy sites that maybe weren't being greatly maintained, they still had the scatter login, which works for token puck and everything else, but then you wouldn't have the Anchor login. And that's because you used a completely different method or a, a, would you call it an SDK? Uh, yeah, yeah. An SDK and a protocol kind of in one. Yeah. And it, it took quite some time. There, it was. It seemed like it was slow to see adoption of that anchor login for some applications. I think at this point, I think all of the applications that I use regularly do allow the anchor login and have for for quite some time. The reason yeah. I, I still use Token Pocket Mobile is literally the, the the browser and certain things that I do. Yeah, it took a long time for adoption, and I think we were also in a little bit of a we were in a little bit of a lull and there was lots of crazy stuff going on in the world. And it just felt like it wasn't that the apps didn't want to adopt it. It was just that it wasn't their priority at that moment in time. So mm -hmm. over time, I think users have nagged enough of the popular applications that they did do that. And now hopefully it won't even be a second thought for new applications. It's just going to be, here's this new platform. Here's all the wallets. They'll all work in the same way. And you get a good user experience, which that's that's what leads to adoption. You know, these crappy user experiences really turn people off from using these apps. The acronym SDK, Software Development Kit. So you got software and developer development, right in that word. So when we talk about SDKs, we're usually talking about the developer side. Is it's it makes development easier. So therefore, you will hopefully get more applications and better applications being built in Antelope chains. Let's talk about the user experience though, because this whole conversation has been going back and forth. Like the SDKs, you think of it like a developer tool, like toolkit, which it is, but really the end users are the main beneficiaries. Could you kind of? Yeah, uh, they're really intertwined. I mean, I think a good analogy is probably the just the web over the past 10 years without crypto in it we've seen that now that there's kind of shared sdks in the web space the reacts of the world the bootstrap css's of the world the the wordpresses like wordpress isn't an sdk but that maybe a bad example but it's these common toolkits that everybody can leverage to just build better user experiences. Anchor Desktop, for example, and even when it was EOS Voter, um, we've always used one CSS framework called Semantic. And it does all the buttons and the animations and the like pop-ups and just like, it is a kit of UI components that we use to standardize how it looks and that way it feels good when you're using the application and all the buttons look kind of the same. So that's kind of, I think, how the UX ties into these SDKs is we're also doing that on the SDK side. There's going to be some interfaces that when you click log in, regardless of what application it is, it's going to be this familiar like box that's like pick your wallet or pick which network or, you know, prompting you for inf information. And we've seen that like just spread across Web 2.0 and really help improve the experience. And that's going to that has to be something we consider in 3.0 as well. 
just in this new paradigm of the web is we need those reusable components. And the SDKs kind of give us an avenue to give that. So ultimately, without SDKs that cover this, the user experience is whatever that individual developer wants to make it for you. With SDKs, there's some like commonality between all the applications that educates the user, improves the user experience, standardizes it, standardizes what to expect, the processes, like it, it's no longer the wild, wild west, like the early internet where every web page was completely different and everybody did like crazy different things. And, you know, when you went to a new website, you never knew what to expect. And that so, site was hosted by GeoCities. Yeah. Half yep. of it was animated. And then we graduated to MySpace, which kind of standardized it, but you could still do a lot of crazy stuff, moving backgrounds. And then Facebook came and it kind of like standardized that look and feel. So I guess that's kind of how I could relate to it. Yeah. Um, and there are some UX standards that were applied over the evolution of those things. So, and now those things have also evolved into SDKs, the tailwinds, the bootstraps, the reacts, the views, like all these things that web developers are going to know that most people won't. But like those words are building blocks for people to build applications that have kind of homogenized the internet in some way and made it so that you can just jump on a new web page and you're like, oh, this is how I log in. You know, like it's intuitive to you. And we have the opportunity to do that through SDKs. So yeah, that's something I'm kind of curious about is <clears throat> I learned through reading the milestones that there's a there's a brand development aspect to this. And you say that this these SDKs will be branded. They'll have an identity and a website. And how did that all fit in? Why is that a thing? It's something that I think we know is important and we're starting to push on for more than just the SDKs. But these other, like I threw kind of buzzword type things out for these other SDKs in the web 2.0 world. When I'm talking about the reacts, the views, that sort of thing, those all have brands and they have identities that developers within those spaces like associate to solving problems. They're like educational leap, like jumping off points into further things. You can learn the SDKs like the internals or you can just use them like machines, but you need like the machine needs a name. So when we were looking at other ecosystems, like going back to when I was talking about hard hat and Morales and some of these other branded SDKs, we've seen how how that causes kind of, um, I call it brand loyalty. I don't like, it's weird applying that to SDKs because it's such a weird subset, but like developers develop this sort of brand loyalty towards SDKs because it is how they learn to build a better machine. And I think within the crypto space, we've seen a few examples of that. Again, the hard hats, the Morales, these sorts of things. And we need to do that within our space as well. The renaming of the C++ implementation to Leap, I think was a great move in that direction. You know, you now have Leap, which people just kind of understand is this is the server side component to the Antelope protocol. And when we're looking at other layers of the stack, because Leap is just one layer of the stack. There's web development, game development, mobile app developments. There's like server side stuff. There's multiple like avenues that are completely different to completely pe different people of interest to different people, I should say. We need those to kind of all have their own unique names. We need them to all have their own unique entry points. So that way people who are interested in that side of this ecosystem have kind of this one thing they can glom onto learn about and then spread out to the others. So just like we've always named all of our other products, except for EOS Voter, something unique, like there's Anchor, there's Fuel, there's Unicove, Graymass was not EOS anything. We need names to be unique. So that way they stand out to the people that make use of them in the ecosystem. So we're continuing that with this theme of SDKs and think it's the right direction to both onboard developers and to create some sort of brand loyalty that is like, oh, I'm this kind of developer. I'm good at this thing. You can't really say I'm good at web client SDKs, but you could be like, I'm good at something with this name. 
is a that skill set name decided yet and you're just working through the branding or is the name still up for discussion internally at gray mass uh we think we're pretty settled on a name and we think we'll be able to present it soon. We don't want to just give like a word or two and be like, here's the name, guys. It we worked really want to... for the horse. <laughs> That's true. It did. I was going to say, is it the horse? <laughs> no, that one's a lot more catchy. And we did joke about that a little bit. But we want to be able to present the name along with uh, like an icon, a color scheme, an identity. We did a whole branding workshop around the name to make sure that developers would get what they wanted out of the brand. I'm not a brand person, so this is all kind of theoretical to me. Mm -hmm. But like, it's my understanding that brands resonate with groups of people and like subconsciously it even helps to some degree. We went through those exercises and came up with uh, a list of good names, a list of good identities, and we've kind of narrowed it down and we're we're assembling a presentation now to bring to the stakeholders. I don't know if there's an approval required, but we definitely want to present it and make sure that nobody just says that's terrible, let's <laughs> change direction. So that should be soon. So soon is a very ambiguous term that we've heard for a, a very long time <laughs> without any certainty of when soon actually is. Weeks. The last milestone for this particular piece of body of work is September 2023. That's when everything that's when the last milestone will be achieved before some kind of maintenance mode. In the more short term, so you mentioned a couple of weeks, we should get a, a, a name that, that's published. Uh, between now and, and September, like what are some of the things that the EOS community and wider antelope ecosystem could look forward to? Um, because I don't think mm -hmm. everyone needs to wait until September to start seeing the benefits of the work that you're doing. Correct. I think by year's end or maybe January, we are going to have something usable, something that maybe the more advanced developers or the more I shouldn't say advanced, the people that have some level of experience with Antelope should be able to start using pieces of it. And like, it'll be a good chunk of the work that's actually done. But I made this analogy somewhere the other day. It's been a lot of conversations about SDKs. But the way that we originally rolled out Anchor was we finished like the protocol in Anchor and then we released it. And there were like no applications that had integrated Anchor. And so there wasn't much of a purpose for it. So what we did was then we really started working with the developer community and we helped people implement this new thing into their applications. Just like me personally, some other people on the teams personally, we were like hands-on helping with the integration of that stuff. And I think that is what got people to understand how to do it. It helped us learn what the problems were and like where the pain points and using it were. And so then that really helped evolve Anchor over like the next couple months. The SDKs are probably going to be a very similar flow to that as to where within the next two to three months, we will have like a usable thing. And then we're going to make a big hubbub about it. We're going to be like, hey, we need developers to work with this new thing. And then we're going to interact with them as much as they are willing in seeing how they're using it, where it excels at doing things for them, and then where it just absolutely doesn't solve their problem. And then we can take that kind of feedback loop and iterate on the SDKs over time to slowly improve them. So I think that while the project in total is a year long, there's going to be a really usable chunk in the first quarter of the project and then a lot of iterations on that afterwards. Um, and you'll notice that a lot of the later milestones, if you do go through them one by one, they are documentation, they are education, they are like, they're things around the project. It's like building the website and, you know, creating a good onboarding flow for new developers to learn about the ecosystem. It's the front load of the project is really development heavy and the second or that latter half of the project is really educationally heavy. So you definitely will get, if you're a developer interested in this, you'll get something a lot earlier than next September. It'll be, it'll be like in an alpha state or early release state much sooner than that. And I would absolutely encourage people to come try it out. Speaking of trying things out, golf, you've been... yeah 
been firing up a rousing game of code golf. Is that um, is that something you're going to be asking for more people's uh, help with? And and what is it? And yeah. it's like mass github.com forward slash gray mass forward slash golf. So code golf is a thing that I was exposed to years and years and years ago in a different form. Code golf in the sense that I was first introduced to it was you need to do something. Like let's say you need to compute some value to some number of length or you know some sort of operation. The goal is to do it in as few characters as possible. Just like golf is to get the ball in the hole in as few swings as possible. So code golf is just using as few characters as possible. We leverage the term golf. We're not trying to do it in as few characters as possible. We're trying to do it in the most simple way possible. That's kind of our version of code golf right now. And what we're doing is, is we're taking common things that developers in the Antelope space do, like signing a transaction or getting data from a smart contract or logging into an application or like just those mundane things that we talked about that every developer has to reinvent the wheel to do. We're taking those and we're creating golf rounds out of them where the round of that golf is to do it like the most simply and elegant way possible. And it doesn't have to be real code. It just has to be, it has to be like pseudo code. It doesn't have to run. It just has to be like, oh, this is the best way to do this thing in pseudo code. So we have multiple rounds of that running for different topics. We keep adding more and more. With the development of the SDKs, we're building from the bottom up. We're doing those building blocks and we're building the Legos and it takes a while to get to a usable state. With golf, what we're doing is we're attacking it from the top down. We are like, okay, what does the end result look like? What is the opening sentence to the book or something? And then we're right, we're going to meet in the middle somewhere where the foundational pieces come together with the code golf rounds. And hopefully the way you actually use the code is the way that we all dreamed up collectively in these code golf rounds. That is unrestrained. What is the nicest way and the easiest way to do an IBC transaction? You know, we don't have a round for that yet, but we probably should. And then what we're going to do, we haven't done this yet, but it's on our upcoming activities is we're going to start talking about this publicly and try to get other developers in the Antelope space who know like how to do things currently today for them to help dream up what the ideal way to do those things is. So how to get, how to get the ball in the hole and the least amount of swings. <laughs> do you have any standout golfers in, in your community? And like, well, I guess, do you want to shout out anybody in particular in the gray mass uh, community or work that people that have been helping out behind the scenes? I mean, it's right now in terms of both golf and SDKs, it's primarily our team. We do want to really open that up, but it's, it's just kind of the guys that have been working on this with me for quite some time now to build a lot of this stuff. Plus, we're training up some new people to be able to participate. So you mentioned earlier how <clears throat> you want to get this feedback from the people actually yeah. using the SDK and the developing development tools, everything that you're creating. Has anyone been like especially helpful, like going out of their ways to give you that feedback that is worth shouting out? I guess we haven't started seeking it heavily. And that's why I don't have anybody to like shout out right now. I've talked with a number <laughs> of people that are like, let me know the minute I can start playing with this. Like, eh. it's just, we haven't like waved the flag and said, go yet. So <laughs> I do have a number of people that have shown interest, but nobody's participating yet. And that's by design because we're still creating the experience around that. Ledger. So you, you provided an update to the coalition members recently that were asking about the status of Ledger. So you actually had an interaction with Ledger, the, the hardware wallet company. Can you kind of debrief the EOS community on sure. what that conversation was and what some of the current limitations are? Yeah. So earlier this year, there was an issue where if your account was associated to a Ledger, it was not able to be unassociated to the ledger. So you were stuck on the ledger. There's an action you can perform to change permissions and that didn't work. So it, <laughs> you were just locked into a ledger effectively and you couldn't get off. So we reached out to the ledger team. We started a dialogue with them both about the wallet paper just to kind of collect some ideas on what was possible for proposals within the wallet paper. And then we were like, and hey, we've got this issue. Our users are stuck. 
we can't fix this. We need help. The guy that built the app isn't around anymore. And so the Ledger team stepped up and fixed the issue for us. I think their users were also reaching out and saying, hey, this is not working. So they were getting hit kind of from both sides. So the Ledger team fixed that issue and got it deployed. And then that dialogue between Gray Mass and the Ledger team kind of continued on. And the Ledger team wanted to establish kind of a more formal relationship on how this is going to be maintained moving forward. So that way they don't have to drop what they're doing to fix our app's problem. So connections were made with the coalition and the ENF. That is all within the past couple of weeks has happened. I think the coalition call this week talked about a ledger meeting between the ENF and the ledger team to start that conversation. I wasn't on that, so I don't know exactly what happened in there, but now it's more than just Gray Mass talking to the Ledger team. It's now the ENF and more formally the coalition. And hopefully we will be getting some of the other more minor issues resolved with the app and then have a path forward to maintain that. So that way EOS users and all Antelope users have access to this great little hardware wallet that they can secure their accounts with. Like when that Ledger app was created, it was, I believe... 2018 or 19 and it was funded through a fifty thousand dollar bounty from cypherglass at the time and it shows one of the weak points of bounties with because there's no like service contract involved so things get deprecated teams shift priorities over time and there was never really a good public goods like funding mechanism or way to to achieve these public goods because nobody's making money off of this ledger live application it really is a public good yeah. but without public goods infrastructure just kind of deprecated over time and never really got optimized it just kind of it's still living in 2019 actually yeah uh, it so it, it's nice to hear that there's movement on it i'm glad just getting this out in the open because we probably won't share a formal announcement until there's an announcement to share but there is dialogue happening and that's kind of like step one to figuring out what the ultimate solution will be but i'm really looking forward to that because uh I just follow monitoring the chats over the years i mean there's every couple of days there's usually a ledger question going on or things like that we have a new cto i don't know if you had a chance to formulate any thoughts or i i mean i don't have any like deep thoughts or anything <laughs> I have interacted with Bart over the years. I'm pretty sure I've met him at a couple events. I don't remember exactly what the topics were, but I've been on calls with him over the past four years for probably something wallet related um, and have always had a good experience like throughout all of that stuff. So, I mean, I'm excited to see where it goes. I think he certainly has a lot of knowledge that's useful. I, and I haven't talked to him since, at least directly, like I've been on calls with him since he has joined on, but I haven't really had a one-on-one -on -one to like pick his brain. And overall, I have a positive opinion right now of the way that's going. And I just don't have much more to say beyond that because I'm sure he's I, catching up on <laughs> lots of things and I'm caught up in my world of SDKs. And at some point they're going to collide. Yeah, it so hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, he's still getting his feet wet and getting caught up because there's a lot that's happened since he was with NFT42. So I'm sure if you asked his opinion of the ecosystem, he'd equally have a very difficult answer because yeah. it's, it's drinking from the fire hose right now. Yeah. I just wanted to put you on the spot and uh, make you feel really awkward at the end of this interview. Um, <laughs> but 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 to segue out of that really quickly, um, yeah. Any anything you want to say? Uh, any any help you want to solicit for your many projects that you're working on or you know websites you want to call out or names you want to mm. accidentally spill on the way no, out i mean Code golf. yeah i there's going to be a lot of that kind of messaging coming out here soon a lot of it involving the sdks and like wanting engagement and wanting to really make this kind of a community you know like it takes a village to raise a child sort of situation. We want to kind of get everything ready and then ask the village to come like, make sure that the child's not crawling into wells or something. <laughs> the, village, so, the village is ready. The village yeah, is ready. yeah. So we're, we're gotta come up with a name for the kid or announce the name. 
but I'm going to stop with this analogy now. <laughs> the whole point of it is that um, I think I will have a lot of those kind of shout outs or mentions or like <clears throat> trying to call out specific people once we do that. But if I do any of that now, if there's no action to it, it's like, hey, someone hold yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what, What's the best way for people to proactively reach out to you? I think just messaging you on telegram or, or discord personally or is there uh i would email, say website twitter which is just at gray mass uh and we also have hello at graymass.com as an email address you could try reaching out to me but my telegram is a mess we don't have a <laughs> telegram channel anymore because there's a whole drama about wallet support and scammers and that kind of stuff <laughs> um but yeah i would say twitter or email are probably the best way and if you need support you can go to support.graymass.com, which is the support portal that we've been working on. So that way we can try to split the like, hey, my anchor is broken from the people who like, hey, I want to help you build something. So if we can separate those two types of communication, it'll make it a lot more effective. Awesome. Well, always a pleasure to talk with you, Aaron. Likewise. It's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do it again. I'm sure there's so much more we could discuss. and but. Uh, Yep. Until next time. Sounds great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.